Layla Tassi spent one night this weekend sleeping in a mall with a bunch of kids, so she's taking today off and will not be on the podcast. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Courtney Astolfi is here to fill in for Layla, along with Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston, who had her own passel of kids. She had 10 was, girls, 10 10-year-old girls in her house yesterday for a birthday party. I was going to say, if you hear some screeching, I still have... Four of them here. So hopefully we can get through the podcast without too much. Oh, I've relocated. It's, it's a holiday. I, that's right. Okay. Kids everywhere. At least it was a halfway decent weekend to, to be dealing with children. Let's begin. Reporter Jeremy Pelzer did the math on the Ohio House Republicans plan to strip more than a billion dollars from schools and local governments in the state and then cut the state income tax. And it's just what we've been saying. House Republicans are trying to give most of that money to the wealthy. Laura, what are the numbers? These are pretty shocking. And I know when we talked about it last week, I said, I don't think most people are going to notice in their paycheck. And I, I think I'm right. So Rich Exner, our data guru, helped Jeremy Peltzer look at this. And so state income taxes rates range from 2.765% of income for the portion from $26,000 to $46,000 and up to 3.99% for the portion of income Ohioans make above $115,000. So there's a range in there. They would make this flat tax of 2.75%. People still making under $26,000 would not pay anything. So an Ohio taxpayer payer making about $75,000 a year would pay about $140 less annually. And those making $150,000 would save $870, which you're starting to think, okay, that sounds like real money. But residents making $500,000 would pay $5,209 left. So, I mean, the vast majority of Ohioans are, are never going to notice a couple of bucks on their paychecks. No, but the schools and the local governments oh, are going right, to Right, because it, it adds up, right? Yeah. Especially when you talk about those millionaires, we're talking about $1.2 billion less to schools, local governments, park districts, libraries, the stuff we all use, the services we all need. And that's to backfill losses from property tax exemptions, which have been in the books, on the books since 1970s. So the, the districts are all used to this money. This wasn't just like one-time ARPA money that they've got to like say, oh, well, it's gone now. This was part of their budgets. It's almost like the Republicans in the House have a brain disease with this and with guns. Cut the taxes, cut the taxes, cut the taxes, give money to the wealthy, give money to the wealthy, give money to the wealthy. I don't get it. I mean, there's nobody clamoring for this. Nowhere. There, people, I think, would like property tax relief, but nobody's really complaining about the Ohio income tax. It's not that onerous. But when you make a small cut in the raid, it has profound effects on the collections. And it's just preposterous. They're going to violate the compact with local governments and school districts, again, to pad the pockets of the wealthy. Yeah. Uh, the, their argument is this is economic development, that if they cut taxes like Florida and Texas, those are the two they point to, then oh, people will move to Ohio. And Jeremy Peltzer said this to me. And I was like, yeah, Florida and 
they, they don't have an income tax there. I was like, well, they also don't have snow, which probably has something to do with people moving to those states. And they can't do anything about snow in Ohio unless we get winters like this every year. So, I mean, it, it's just preposterous. Uh, there's a guy who said, every time we increase taxes, GDP shrinks and Americans suffer. Every time we lower taxes, GDP explodes and Americans flourish and prosper. And I was like, he offers absolutely no proof for that statement. And what Zach Schiller, the research director for Policy Matters Ohio, which, as we know, is a progressive-leaning institution, he said it's going to do very little for middle-income people. The only people who will benefit significantly will be high-income Ohioans. And that's what the numbers show. What I wish I could go back in time and understand the brain disease of people voting to bring in an income tax in the 70s. It just doesn't make sense to me that people would have voted for that in any time in my lifetime. But it's there and it pays for government. It's long paid for government. And this this it's silly. They every every session, every budget, they come in again to try and cut it. But they never cut their pet programs. They stick it to the local governments and the schools, which are left which to do it. Exactly. Then, then schools are going to say, "Oh, we need another property tax increase." So it's not like the you know, it's it's not like the need goes away if they cut the taxes. No, I, look, we're all paying a half percent more, roughly, in our income taxes locally because mm-hmm. of the tax cuts they made at at the state. It's there's no tax cut for anybody really because it keeps going up locally to contend with. But then you got to look at most of the state, right? Most of the state is rural. Those are all townships. Townships cannot levy income taxes. So they're just sticking it to people in cities. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How has the problem of straw gun purchases been growing in Northeast Ohio and figuring into more numerous violent crimes? Courtney, this was a powerful piece of reporting by Adam Faris that really put this problem front and center for our gun violence. People buying guns legally to give to people who cannot have them. It's a big problem. How big? Yeah, and it's increasing according to this reporting. So this all kind of stems from a recent report from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. This is one of the biggest looks the agency has given in recent decades to straw purchasing. And it shows, you know, these patterns across America, but specifically in Cleveland, straw purchases are a growing problem, according to this report. And, you know, we kind of get a get a little entree into the different kind of folks who have been charged with this offense in Cleveland. One was the case of, you know, an Anthony Redman. He had several felonies, some violent, you know, convictions over the decades. He linked up with some other some other guys and some folks in central Ohio to to start a pistol buying operation. And, and in just one month, this group brought 116 pistols to Cleveland to sell to others who can't go out and legally buy a gun. And some of the numbers here were interesting. This ATF report is one metric of of detecting straw purchases for guns used in crimes. They look at the the length of time between when a gun is purchased and when it's used on the street. And if it's less than three years, the ATF takes that as indicative of a straw purchase here. And so, you know, the median length in Ohio is about two and a half years. 
United States wide, it's about three years, but in Cleveland, it's it, the window shorter, indicating that straw purchasing problem in Cleveland, it's the average of 2.2 years. So that kind of gives us some data to show how this is playing out. But, you know, Adam gave us some other examples of, of folks who are doing this. People are using it as an operation to bring in large amounts of weapons and, you know, make money and sell it to people on the street. In other cases, it's just like a, a woman for example, without any sort of criminal background, just buying a gun for her boyfriend, for example. So it really runs the And game. we should point out, just because a gun is used in a crime less than three years after it's bought, sometimes they're stolen. But on the whole, it's a great metric to show how big the problem is. And th- their penalties are serious. If you buy a gun and give it to somebody who uses it in a crime, you're liable. You can be sued civilly. You can be charged criminally. It's a pretty serious offense, but it sounds like a lot of people are throwing caution to the wind here. Well, and we are seeing the federal government last year, Congress enacted a law upping those penalties, max prison sentence from 10 up to 15 years and up to 25 if the gun is, you know, bought in connection with with some kind of drug deal. And federal prosecutors in northern Ohio are already starting to use this law to start prosecuting folks. 25 were charged in 2022. Two, for example, but they they they're looking to ramp that up um, in this coming year. So we should be seeing more bus for this kind of offense. Yeah, it's a terrific piece by Adam. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com, and you are listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine was a key member of the state redistricting commission that failed over and over and over to do its job, violating the Ohio Constitution, never drawing the maps that voters demanded. So now, what's his solution for map making in the future? Well, he talked to the Toledo Blade editorial board last week, and in that meeting, he endorsed the idea of a nonpartisan redistricting commission. And he said that, quote, taking it out of the hands of elected officials is probably a good idea. But he says it will be challenging to create an impartial process of drawing districts, but anything would be better than the five failed attempts we had last time. Um, And he also said that the voter-approved reforms from 2015 and 2018 are obviously broken. And so Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer reached out to Dan Cheerney, DeWine's spokesman, and he said that, you know, uh, the Republicans and Democrats missed opportunities for compromise. And he said that the Ohio Supreme Court focused too much on maps that match the proportion of the statewide vote instead of districts that either party could win. So DeWine said he may support citizen-led reform like uh, retired Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor has vowed to do, but he says he needs support from both parties and that the devil is in the details. Well, I do think it's interesting that the top elected official in the state is saying, yeah, let's not have elected officials do this. I also want to remind people there was a movement to make a better system. The Republicans that run the state took that over and said, hey, no, 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 we'll put together a system that they put before voters that now they're saying, well, it's unworkable. Let's remember who put this together. It was Mike DeWine's party that put this failed system together. And a lot of people wonder if it was a cynical, intentional thing to do. Uh, well, it'll be interesting to see if if O'Connor does come up with a good alternative, because clearly it's broken. And we do know that the Just League of Women Voters of Ohio, they're researching a possible 2024 ballot measure on this. And they said that they want to put a constitutional amendment for an independent commission on the ballot. 
There are other ways around this that nobody's talking about. I'm going to put together one in a column I'm writing for Sunday that has to do with how we vote that could negate the damage of gerrymandering in a big way. Something to look forward to at the end of the week. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is this an overreaction, a smart move to ease anxiety or sound decision making? What is the Cincinnati strategy for dealing with chemicals that leaked into the waterways from the East Palestine Tandremit? And Laura, this thing is becoming a circus. Aaron Barakovich is coming. Lisa says she heard Donald Trump is coming. It's amazing how much attention this is getting. It's just being fanned into hysteria. And you wonder why, because when it first happened, it's not like everybody jumped on a plane and, and flew to Youngstown area. Now it's been two weeks and, and now it's getting all of this national attention. I'm not sure why everybody is glomming onto it. But Cincinnati dis- officials decided that they were going to switch their water intake from the Ohio River to their reserves. That's even though after they took 130 water samples, they found no detectable levels of any of the chemicals from the derailment site. And they did say the move was with a, quote, abundance of caution. And I I get it. Like, they don't want anyone to question whether their water's safe. They want people to use it and feel good about it. But at this point, I think it was totally unnecessary. Yeah, I, I just do not understand this. This is not the kind of disaster that the hurricane in South Florida was or some of the other things we've seen where people have lost everything and there's death and there's injuries. Nobody has died here. This is you're just not seeing the the same kind of level. And yet it is drawing this incredible amount of attention. We talked Friday. It's because a lot of social media and TikTok reporting, I guess you could call it, has been ridiculous. But I, when you hear Aaron Brockovich and Donald Trump, it's just, okay, put up the circus tent. This is becoming silly. Do you think they're going to meet? <laughs> I don't know. Like Aaron Brockovich has a great history of fighting back when, when somebody poisons the, the groundwater, but she doesn't know what happened here. I mean, she's telling people don't trust the government. You should find out first whether you should trust the government. Mike DeWine keeps saying we're doing every test possible. They're putting a medical clinic now into East Palestine for anybody that has a malady they want to get addressed. It just, it's a, uh, it's, it seems like a big overreaction. It makes me think that, you know, it makes me think of Flint, Michigan's water crisis, which is still going on, by the way. Yeah, which is a real right. crisis. A huge crisis. I mean, they, they they changed their system and they put lead into the water that, you know, completely harms everybody's brain. That That's the difference is this is, comparatively speaking, I just, this seems way, way beyond what it what it merits. Yeah. And you know, you mean, you knew the chemicals in it, right. And you knew how much there are or were, you don't know everything, but like it's a finite amount. It's not like something that's been leaching from like a factory or from the pipes. Right. Like it it was there and it flushed through. Right. There's no evidence it's in the water and the air is being tested regularly. And there's no evidence that it is in concentrations that harm people. That's that. I don't want to do, demean the experience of the people. And I'm sure that is incredibly frightening. And I, I I feel very bad for those people, but comparatively to other disasters. Yeah. Let's put it in perspective. You're listening to today in Ohio reporter, Caitlin Durbin talked to leaders who accepted the public transit challenge in which they tried to do all of their around town travel on buses and trains. Courtney, did any of them find success? 
Well, it appears that none of them actually relied exclusively on transit for the week. And that was kind of the goal of Clevelanders for Public Transit in issuing this challenge. But they did take it, you know, different times throughout the week, and it seems relied on it more than usual. And we had some very interesting takeaways for folks who did, you know, jump in and and try and use it more than they normally would. You know, I thought one of the most interesting examples came from City Councilwoman Rebecca Marr. She started out the week on a Monday trying to catch the bus downtown, I think, to work. And it just cruised right on past her. And so she was going to miss a meeting. She had to, I think, go back and find alternate transit to get downtown. But this highlights a problem that Clevelanders for Public Transit has been pointing out. You know, it seems quite a bit, at least on social media in recent weeks and months, buses just cruising right on people and not stopping to pick them up. But, you know, aside from that issue, we had other insights. Uh, City Councilman Charles Slife participated and and he, you know, he, he tries to rely on transit often enough, but he's not solely a transit rider normally. And he find he found that, you know, there's flexibility issues, right? To be able to jump home real quick, see your kids and then head back out for a meeting, for example. It's not easy to do things like that. One thing that, that a lot of the folks brought up to Caitlin who participated was, frequency and timing, right? If you miss one bus and you have to wait another half hour or another hour for the next one to come, you're missing your appointment. You're missing your obligation. And and that's kind of what the advocates wanted here. They wanted local officials to see what it's really like to plan your life around times that don't make it easy for folks and result in really long. Yeah. Periods. The problem is the only solution to that is to increase the number of routes and the frequency of the routes, which is hugely costly. And is the demand there for that? This is one of those chicken and the egg questions. It's let's face it. What is it? 80 or 90% of the RTA budget comes from the sales tax, not from the fares. So if they were to expand it greatly, it would fall on the backs of a lot of taxpayers can it be done? Yeah. And, and frequency is the big question here. That is the budget hog, right? But, but, you know, a few years ago, we weren't that far away from talking about raising taxes to expand frequency. And that, that conversation kind of died and we haven't heard much at all in recent years, but, but that is the key. The frequencies declined in recent years, according to Clevelanders for Public Transit. RTA redesigned its map a year or two ago to try and make do with the funding that and the frequency it does have, but that's the desire and there's not really a path forward without raising taxes, at least. Uh, I read a story this morning, the Generation Z born 1996 to 2012 is buying cars at a far lower rate or getting driver's licenses at a far lower rate than the previous generations because they want transit and Uber and things like that. So maybe the the younger generation will force change and get an expansion of transit in Cleveland. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Our stats reporter, Zachary Smith, crunched 50 years of census data to track how black people have fared in Ohio in areas like income, education, and employment. Lisa, what did his research show? Well, he he found that there were historical gaps between the black population of Ohio and other races, and he wanted to see whether those gaps changed over 50 years. And there's been incremental process 
progress, I guess I could say. So uh, just kind of an overview. There are 1.7 million black Ohioans. That's about 14.3% of the population. That's actually up from 10% back in 1980. So Zachary looked at five categories, income, education, employment and workforce, housing, and then age and health. So as far as median income goes, uh, blacks are the lowest of any race in Ohio at $36,929 dollars a year. Interestingly, Asians were the highest at over $85,000 a year, and that's nearly $20,000 more than whites in in Ohio. And he also found that uh, cities with high black populations like East Cleveland, Trotwood, and Warrensville Heights are among the 20 lowest in income and the highest in child poverty. In education, there are 18.7% of blacks in Ohio with bachelor's degrees or higher. That's still 10 points, 11 points lower than the general population. But they find that high-achieving black students are choosing historically black colleges and universities out of state. So some experts are saying that's kind of a black brain drain going on. Also in the workforce, 54.5% of blacks in Ohio are employed. That's down very slightly from 1970. But they're more likely to be shift workers like customer service, cooks, laborers, and janitors, and so forth. Jobs with high turnover rates and no benefits. Um, In housing, Cuyahoga County has the largest black population in Ohio, uh, 23.7. That's up from 19.1% in 1970. Um, Lots of predominantly black cities. Um, Let's go on to age and health. The median age is climbing very slowly for blacks. It's now the median age is 33.7. It's lower than the state median of 39. Yeah, if you look at this in a vacuum, you can find some good news Mm -hmm. in it, that things have gotten better. But when you look at it comparatively to others in the state, it's, it's a bad news story. Yes, it is. And like I said, there are gains, but they're so incremental. If you're looking at over 50 years of gains, it's just a drop in the bucket. Yeah, it's, it's an, it was a, interesting way to approach it with what he did, uh, but it it does put a lot into perspective. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We touched on this, but we should go a little deeper. The residents in East Palestine keep saying they feel ill because of fumes in the air or poison in the water. Ohio keeps saying the air and water are safe. Laura, how is Ohio trying to ease the anxiety of residents with that clinic? They are creating this medical clinic to answer questions, evaluate symptoms, and provide medical expertise. It could be up and running today. And Mike DeWine, governor, said that the residents will have access to the best experts in the world in terms of chemical exposures. And they'll they'll post all this information online at ema.ohio.gov slash East Palestine. Obviously, there's been, we just talked about this, so much pressure on Ohio to to do something and to treat these people um, and, and their needs and make sure that they're safe and healthy, especially maybe that's why it got so out of hand is because people were reporting, you know, chickens dying and pets sickened and things like that. And they felt like they weren't being listened to people like Sherrod Brown and every democratic state lawmaker and, you know, JD Vance have been urging uh, DeWine to cl- declare East Cleveland, sorry, East Palestine, this disaster area. And we talked about that Friday since Norfolk Southern, the, the company has the responsibility to take care of the town and the cleanup. There's no involvement of FEMA, but 
Brown, uh, Sherrod Brown and, and President Biden want to get FEMA involved anyway. They probably just feel a lot of public pressure to do so. So yeah, they're, they're going to open a clinic so anyone could go there and get tested, which is good news for the residents. Yeah, the thing that DeWine and Vance should be doing is trying to regulate the airlines so this kind of thing doesn't happen. The train companies. Yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is everything Cleveland City Council has done for 50 years or more suddenly null and void? If so, what does that mean? Courtney, how could such a thing have happened? Well, so my reporting has taken me in an interesting direction at City Council. I'd like to back up a few steps and and let you know where this story originated. I've, I've noticed in recent months that Council's been... There's been some few votes before council where some members have voted no. And when you're sitting in the meeting, you can't discern which council members are casting no votes and which council members are casting yes votes. And that seemed uh, questionable to me. Usually most meetings you go to, you can clearly see who's voting which way. But Cleveland City Council has this practice where council members can vote no in one of two ways. They can stand up and, you know, verbally tell the viewing public, I am voting no on whichever ordinance. There's this other method, and it seems like council has been using this more in recent months, but that it's been a long-held council practice and used at various times throughout the years, where you can just kind of quietly convey your no vote directly to the clerk, and those who are viewing can't tell how their elected representative is necessarily voting. They, it's not done openly and loudly in the course of the meeting where anyone watching could discern who's voting which way. And that kind of got me going down a rabbit hole. The Supreme Court, the Ohio Supreme Court in 2019, ruled on a similar kind of a different practice, but similar in Bratnall where in one vote, you couldn't discern who was voting which way. And, and the Ohio Supreme Court said, no, that violates the sunshine law, the state sunshine laws. Members of the viewing public should be able to understand in the moment how their elected representatives are voting during these public meetings. So then we went down a whole rabbit hole and I, I, I started talking to, you know, one of the preeminent guys in the state, Dave Marburger, for, for sunshine laws in the state of Ohio. And we arrived at this very interesting legal question that comes down to some text in the Cleveland Charter. And 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 that led Dave Marburger, the expert, to say that it appears that council's voting methods, long steeped in tradition, used for decades and decades, in his view, did not follow the letter of the law outlined in the charter. So, right. so now city council maintains that it does follow the charter, but that's the big legal question where we're at. It appears they don't follow the charter. And so the smart move by the council would be change their ways. I I, I do think it ends up being a technical violation. You can't unbuild Brown Stadium, right? You can't take all the money back from police that you've approved in contracts. Things. It's just you can't reverse 50 years of legislation. If somebody sued, you know, if Sabod Chandra, for instance, who loved to sue the city, went in to say such and such legislation is bogus because it wasn't passed properly, a judge would probably look at it talk to the council, understand that their intent was to pass it and say, you know, it, I deem it's passed. I don't think you're going to get anything thrown out. 
but but instead of circling the wagons, they had to admit it. Like, okay, we're not doing this right. Let's fix it now and get legal opinions from people that tell them how to proceed or how to protect past legislation. Uh, it'll be a shame if this is just, this is the way we always done it, and so we're going to keep doing it. That was the Jimmy DeMora defense. Well, you know, I will say I did have a nice discussion with council staff, and we kind of got into 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 how this works and what their view is here. They, they Their reading of the language in the charter says what they're doing is okay. Dave's reading says it's not. But, beyond that, but, uh, but hold on, you know, we'll Look, have to see where it goes. People who've never been to a council meeting don't understand. It's bedlam down there. You have a clerk that's going, blah, 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 blah. it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. And then they call the roll and people don't even vote. I mean, it's nobody does it that way. They should have a voice vote every time, yay or nay. They do blocks of legislation. It's not like they do it on every piece and they can do it. Their defense is if we know there's going to be something controversial, we do a voice vote. But for the rest of the stuff, we don't. It's easy to fix. And, and, you know, we talk about whether it's it's fulfilling whatever the requirement in the charter is, but taking a step back, too, for how it impacts regular people's lives, that means Clevelanders struggle to follow the business that's happening right. in front of them, their business. And and th- that transparency issue, uh, you know, council thinks they're transparent, but all the other experts I talked to said, no, like, you, you've got to be able to understand what folks are doing in front of you at a public meeting, uh, that uh, that. That's the whole point of transparency. Every reporter has covered City Hall, going back to when I was there. You could not, sitting in the meeting, be sure what was passed. And if you were writing about something, you always had to walk up to the clerk and say, okay, did that pass? And sometimes, even though it was supposed to be voted on, they'd say, oh, no, we pulled that at the last minute. You'd have no clue. (laughs) It was the most confusing sort of situation. And that's for people that were sitting there. So it's not transparent. Stories will be coming, what, later this week? As soon as you say we're okay. good to publish. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Got a short one to wrap it up. Metro Health filed its formal response to the second lawsuit that ousted CEO Akram Boutros filed against the system. Lisa, no surprises, but it was somewhat strongly worded. Very strongly worded. This Friday filing in Common Pleas Judge John O'Donnell's court in the second lawsuit filed by former CEO Akram Boutros alleging his improper firing in 2022. The Metro Health attorneys restated their claim that Brutus acted improperly in awarding himself nearly $2 million in bonuses, was terminated for cause for acts of dishonesty. The bonuses were not approved by the Metro Health Board, and they denied that Boutros' allegations that he was allowed to authorize bonuses and, and that he revealed his compensation to the board. Now, Boutros' attorney, Jason Bristol, says the board did approve the bonus program and knew the CEO was included, and it's a matter of public record. Yeah, I, the, 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 this just is going to be nasty until it's resolved. The, the judge did dispense with one, one civil claim by Boutros, but this is this will go to court and we'll have lots more strong language in the future. These two sides are dug in. That's it for today in Ohio for a Monday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Tuesday talking about some more news. 